Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So, friends, we are in episode three of a relatively new series in which we're talking about every everyone's favorite subject, the subject of death. Uh, and the fact that eventually all of us will face it. All of us will die and all of us will have to eventually either we or our families will have to make decisions about what happens um, after we die. So we've talked about um, death in general and kind of, you know, the Christian theology around death and, and dying. Our last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about cremation versus burial and organ donation and how we um, how we look at those things through uh, our theological lens of, of Christianity. So where are we taking this episode? Well, um, today we thought we would talk about something related to the conversations you have with family, not just about after one has died, like about what happens to our body after death, but the questions that are maybe most important, but also really difficult to ask about before we die, what kinds of treatments we do or don't want to have done to us if we're in a position not to be able to make those decisions for ourselves. And this leads us into territory that is a little bit further afield from our areas of expertise. Uh, as pastors, we have a certain amount of um, bona fide training in theology and pastoral care, um, church history, maybe some choir and things like that. But um, we are not legal experts, and that's probably worth us saying as a disclaimer. We're um, also not medical experts. Also not medical yeah. experts. Um, <laughs> I, I will also add that some of what uh, I I bring to this conversation comes back from years and years and years in my childhood of being the son of an attorney who is something of an expert at medical ethics and advanced directives because I used to get drug along to my dad's speeches at hospitals and nursing associations when he'd have to give talks to nurses and nursing staffs at hospitals about living wills and healthcare power of attorneys and things like that. So it's a little fuzzy uh and this the differences between one state and, a di and another are going to be different as well but at least some of the broad brushstrokes are things that even like a 10 year old kid could uh, understand well enough if he was sitting in the back of the room handing out his dad's handouts <laughs> maybe the the, the place to, to start is to say the collective kind of documents that we're going to be talking about today broadly are called advanced directives. And the idea of an advanced directive is if I'm in a position where I can't communicate for myself in the lived moment what I want with a medical decision, I've put on paper either what I want specifically in a bunch of hypotheticals or I've named somebody else to make decisions for me as in in my place with the power of attorney. Is that an or, or is that going to be a both and? Well, it, these are two separate documents. Um, uh, what's called a living will would be uh, I write down what I want done. And so, for example, it might be if I were permanently unconscious and um, not in a vegetative state or something like that, I do or don't want to be on these machines or I do or I don't mm -hmm. want to have these life-saving um, measures taken. Or that might also include here are the circumstances where I want to do not resuscitate order put in place or something like that. 
a healthcare power of attorney would say, if I'm in a permanent vegetative state or terminal state or something like that, and I'm permanently unconscious, I designate so-and-so to make decisions for me that the doctor would, or you can also have like, if I'm temporarily unconscious, you know, if I'm under anesthesia in surgery and the doctor need to make a decision, who do I grant the ability to make decisions for if I'm not reachable Mm -hmm. that way? Um, You're allowed to have, as far as I know, both of those kind of documents. So I can, if I want to be absolutely clear about um, who's making decisions for me, I can get it written down in a living will and have a healthcare power of attorney so that somebody's making choices. And if it turns out they're not available, we've got what I wrote down or sometimes what I wrote down in a living will will give guidance to the person who I named to give so that they're not feeling like they're just making it up from scratch mm-hmm. or they have some sense of what your your wishes are. Um, I know different states have different ways of um, creating those documents or maybe a little bit about how they're formatted and things, but the, those are the sort of the broad brushstrokes. If I'm spelling out on paper in advance what I want, that's more like a living will. If it's here's someone I want to make decisions for me, uh, that's closer to what we call a healthcare power of attorney. I'm just saying it might be helpful to have both. So then, mm-hmm. um, so like you said, see, the, the living will gives direction to the power of attorney, but also it, in circumstances, your power of attorney would most likely probably be an emergency contact in your phone. Right. Um, but your living will might be some like, especially say, heaven forbid something would happen when you're out of the state, out of the yeah. country, yeah. traveling, you know, you don't have those documents handy where somebody can just run to your house and find them. Right, right, right. And this is, is one of the things I've noticed in the years that I've been in ministry is uh, at hospitals now when people are admitted, how I think almost always in, yep. when I visit people here, they'll, they will ask you upon admission, do you have uh, advanced mm-hmm. directives living with a healthcare power of attorney? And if they don't already have them on file at the hospital, they will ask you to get them or have someone bring them in. Again, that's not meant to be, we think you're going to die here, but it's one of those, mm-hmm. if we have it on file here, we don't have to play the, where do you keep it in your house kind of a thing. Yeah. The other thing, as, oh, go ahead. Well, as some, some, sometimes, you need to make those decisions quickly. You don't have the um, the privilege of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you, you don't have time for your family to debate about like, oh, should we, shouldn't we do this, this, or this? Um, because things are happening now. The doctors need to know now whether it's okay to um, do CPR, like something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, so the more people who know what your wishes are, the better. Um, that way there doesn't have to be debate. And this is another place where the, the clarity of having these documents, uh, can be really helpful when you have families that don't all agree or get along with one another, having clarity of what's the chain of of Mm -hmm. order of who makes decisions on behalf of the person. Um, and God forbid, but sometimes you have those circumstances where you'll have a bunch of adult siblings and each one swears they know what dear mom or dear dad or dear Aunt Edna wanted. Um, and if they disagree with one another, or if it's not even, we think we know what they wanted, but here's what I want. And they have a hard time separating what I want from what so-and-so wanted mm-hmm. for themselves. 
having it spelled out clearly, here's what I want, not only tells the rest of the family, here's what my wishes are, but also gives priority because uh, without having advanced directives, without a living will or healthcare power of attorney, states will usually have sort of a default order of who they are in touch with as ma- medical decision makers. Mm-hmm. And usually it goes something like spouse, adult living children, and then further out, you get to other relations. Like if there are adult parents or if there are other relatives and there it gets a little fuzzier, sort of like you know the the line of succession for the monarchy that everybody knows who comes like number two and number three but after that it's a little uh, yeah who who would be next in line um and when you're talking about quick decisions that need to be made mm-hmm. it is really hard sometimes to have to do the who's really who whose decision makes uh you know do we do we listen to unless it's spelled out in paper or with a person who's designated its decision maker and, and i've always appreciated folks who um like parishioners who have had these advanced directives living wills already in place and well known by everybody in the family because it often spares someone in the family from having to make really terrible decisions mm-hmm. that other people don't agree with and then they're mad at a family member of like how could you tell the doctor to not do cpr it's your fault that mom is dead yeah and it's like yeah. no that's what my mom wanted that's what our mom wanted is she didn't want you know whatever um this was mom's decision, not my decision. I'm just letting her opinions be known. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that is tremendously helpful in both the grieving process as well as the relationships that remain after a person has died. Yeah, yeah. And that is such, such an important point, Sarah, about the way it takes a burden off the rest of the family. So nobody is left with that feeling of guilt, whether somebody else mm-hmm. is saying it out loud or you're left worrying to yourself. Did I? cause somebody's death or am I to blame or something like that? Yeah. Are there other ways that your um, faith perspective or ways that your role as pastors has, has interacted with people um, in, uh, in, in conversation about advanced directives? Yes. Uh, so this is an anecdotal experience. When I was um, a hospital chaplain intern person in seminary, um, I was with a family who knew that they were going to be um, taking the ventilator off their dad Hmm. um, and that this ultimately would allow him to die peacefully um, because this machine was breathing for him. He couldn't breathe on his own anymore. Um, and he was, he was brain dead. Like he, like they were preparing themselves for this moment. Um, and they knew that this was something that their dad wanted, that this was written down. They all had it. Uh, but the lingering question that they all had before the doctors did this was, um, is he ready for heaven? And they were asking me this question and, you know, I was working for the hospital. I'd never met this family before. I wasn't this man's pastor or Mm. knew any of the family before this. And, um, you know, I had only one year of seminary under my belt. And this was the question being posed to me. And this question as like the doctors were like standing by ready to like Mm -hmm. take out his, his breathing tube Mm -hmm. is, um, is he ready for heaven? 
-hmm. And um, I had to rely on, I believe, yes, because Mm -hmm. God loves him. Like no matter what this man has done or not done in his life, God loves him and God, God cares for him and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that was for them at that moment, that was the thing that they were holding on to. And I have no idea if I had said, no, he's not ready for heaven, what they would have done if they would have mm-hmm. stopped the doctor from like <laughs> removing this man's vent so that he could get ready for heaven in some way. Um, but I had to rely on that moment of, yes, God loves you. So therefore God is ready to welcome him into heaven. Um, but, but yeah, that was the question on this family's mind is, is he ready for heaven? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it sounds like you handled things beautifully in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. And to, to me, that feels very, very grounded in gospel um they, again like this is one of those territories where we may not have here's the one bible verse where how you know if somebody's but more like what fits with the shape of the god we know in jesus and to me it seems awfully clear that in the end what makes anybody ready for heaven is jesus grip on us more than my grip on jesus and so i'm not sure anybody's ready but from their own standpoint uh to die because it comes as a surprise you're like there's no no nobody wants it um but there's no point at which Jesus isn't ready to catch us. Um, and maybe that's it. That like, if, if we imagine that death is about letting go, there's a beautiful line of Robert for our capons, uh, where he talks about when I die, what I lose is my ability to hold on to my own life. What I do not lose is Jesus ability to hold on to my life. And for me, like mm-hmm. that's such a hugely important theological idea. And it's in moments like that, like you described where where that's necessary that's life-giving where you need to have that kind of way of thinking about things otherwise otherwise we're always left wondering yeah were they ready did they say the words right did they mean them well enough that kind of thing and and i think the 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 thing i keep coming back to this whole series um is communication Mm -hmm. keep Mm -hmm. talking to your loved ones about what you want and what you want to have happen when you are in these situations, if you're ever in these situations. Um, but I think that also includes your faith. Yeah. Like, uh, like it's one of those things that this family needed this reassurance that their dad was going to, you know, go to heaven. And I don't know if that's just they never talked about that in their family or or what the situation was. Because, again, I had met the, this this family like five minutes before they yeah. posed this question to me. Um, but it's, it's communication about what you believe and mm-hmm. what you want. Um, so communication, always important, but especially when we're talking about end of life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes families uh, struggle when there are divergences of faith or non-faith in the extended family. And especially if someone has very clearly and loudly rejected organized religion or faith or something like that, or had gone through a period of that, sometimes others in the family are really nervous about, did they did they die an atheist or did they die believing or mm-hmm. you know, that? And at some point, there's there's a certain beauty to the unknowing that i mean nobody knows how jesus reaches to us in our final moments or things like that the same way jesus reaches to the thief on the cross you know uh at at the end of of uh, the crucifixion story in luke's gospel um 
but there sometimes families bring a certain assumption of here's what we needed to have had them say or do out loud for them to and it's it's worth naming if someone comes from a tradition like that it it's harder to to give an answer in that moment yeah. if if one comes from a tradition that leans harder on this has always been about God's grip on us more than my grip on Jesus, then it becomes really easy to lean on. Um, yeah, God's gotcha. Um, how well I phrased it or how well I put it into words was never the issue. Um, but it's always been about God claiming me more clearly and loudly. I, I think for, for me as a Lutheran, part of that comes from Luther's own life and uh, reflection, even though he wasn't thinking about his own death, but he always used to worry about whether he'd properly confessed his sins or not. And like, did I forget some? Did I really mean it that I was sorry for them? And like, at some point, what broke him out of that constant cycle of guilt and worry was, wait, my forgiveness doesn't depend on how well did I remember my sins or how deeply did I mean that I'm sorry for them, but on God's ability to forgive. And so if this depends on God's action to forgive rather than my ability to say I'm sorry really well, then similarly as well, even my faith, probably there's places I believe the wrong things or ha don't believe well enough or have lots of doubts. If it depends on my holding on to God, I'm bound for hell. But if 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 this depends on God's grip on me, I got nothing to worry about because I'm in God's hands who won't drop me. Erica, are there ways that your perspective as a pastoral caregiver or or uh, pastor or or person of faith yourself have in, as as interconnected with these kind of conversations or documents? I remember an experience much like Sarah's when I was a chaplain in seminary. Um, not the faith question, but meeting with the family whose father, uh, I think it was. I forget who's if it was father or father-in-law who, who was related to who. Um, they they started doing CPR to save him and they, they resuscitated him and everything and later realized that he had a living will mm. and did not want resuscitated. Mm. And they they struggled with that. Yeah. And I, I just had to tell, like, in the moment you did what you thought was right. Right. You know, you can't change it now. Mm -hmm. You know, he's mm -hmm. on he's on a vent. You can't you you know you can't take him off the vent now. But you did what you what you knew in the moment, what you thought was right in the moment, and it goes back to Sarah's you know comment about communication, communication, yeah. communication, making sure that your family knows where your documents are, what your wishes are. Um, yeah, because it it really they they really struggled with that. Yeah. Um, once they realize that this isn't what dad wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I was almost out of seminary at that point. I had five, five years of seminary at that point, but like, how do you answer a family who has resuscitated a loved one mm -hmm. who didn't want it? Mm -hmm. Like, did they do right? Did they do wrong? It, you know, all I could say is in the moment you did what you thought was right. Sure, sure, sure. And it's it's obviously in a, in a in circumstances like that, you're dealing with case by case differences. Sometimes when those heroic measures are done, the person regains consciousness and sometimes mm -hmm. they are just brought back to being on event and not responsive or conscious again. And there it, it's hard to tell. Did our choice make a difference for them or that yeah. kind of thing? And 
I, I think your point about like, you know, when, what, once a decision is made and things have been acted on, there, there's no going backwards to undo it. So it's okay. We, we, you do the best you can with the information that you've got. And mm-hmm. again, as, as both of you have drawn attention to, this is the kind of exactly the reason why communication in advance is so helpful. And maybe not just the, here's what I want, but here's why, so that other people can, even if they don't share the opinion, understand the logic the person has of like, mm-hmm. here's mm-hmm. here's what I want and here's why. And so that we don't have any arguments of, well, dad never thought about this reason why he was wrong or, you know, that kind of like, here's what I, you know, I want you to understand this is this is what I choose and this is why. And I need you to know that. And, and again, knowing that part of how you love people is to respect their wishes, even if you might personally choose differently for yourself. That's a hard thing just from an emotional maturity level for a lot of adults you know just the the idea of to love someone does not mean that you have to agree with them it means i will respect your wishes um and can honor what is what what you choose and what you want um but that's a difficult especially if you're uh from a mindset or um in a, in a wider community that sort of has this narrow sense of you must agree with me or you're wrong it's really hard to get to a place of we can disagree and um, I need to honor what your choice is. That's hard. And when you're choosing a power of attorney, to have that be a family conversation. Oh yeah. Not just, not just. Oh, I'm going to pick so and so because you know, like, especially if you have adult children. I, I saw this in my last parish. Um, you know, there were adult children and stepchildren, and and, and all this, and there there was a lot of infighting that yeah. happened. And I, yeah. I won't go into all the details. But like, you know, have that conversation. Why, why are you choosing this person? Yeah. And, and to be able to say that sometimes the person you pick might not be the nearest relation because you know, it would be harder for the nearest relation. Like there's like, sometimes it's, I need to pick a, a, you know, a a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law rather than a daughter, because I don't want to put that on my own. I mean, and again, Mm -hmm. like you need to be, that person needs to be okay with that rule. Don't just name them and say, I hope they're willing. Um, and it's also worth noting that on, to my knowledge, all, all healthcare power of attorney documents, there's a succession of several people who can be named. You can say, mm-hmm. here's my first choice. If they're not available two, and then maybe even three. Um, but to be able to talk with that person in advance, are you willing to do that? And here are the, here is what my wishes are so that they don't feel like they're being thrown under the bus. Uh, it might also be helpful for folks to know and to have this conversation with their family that there's a difference between a financial power of attorney, which is like mm, who will mm-hmm. deal with my investments and bank accounts and things and power healthcare power of attorney. So yeah. those, you might have different people in your life you trust in different ways. And it might be, I love all my grown children, but one is terrible at math. So that person is not going to be the financial person. <laughs> On the other hand, the other person is, you know, is willing to do what my wishes are with healthcare choices. Um, but that it's not, you don't have to pick the same person for both of those roles. Goals. You can choose somebody to be in charge of your finances and investments or whatever, and also have somebody else designated for healthcare decisions. And I will say, and I just did this recently. Um, I was going through some stuff on my phone and updating uh, my emergency contacts mm. because I'm an only child and I am single. Uh, my parents live two hours away from me. And so I have my associate pastor as one of my emergency contacts. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I haven't had these, this level of conversation <laughs> about anything because uh, we've been together for surprise. <laughs> surprise! I, I think I did recently tell him that he's my emergency contact, and I also have um, one of my leaders in one of my churches in my contacts as well. Just because 
if for nothing else, they're closer. Yeah. You know, and hopefully they would have an, a way that I need to make sure as I'm talking to sound like they don't know my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, they've not met my parents. <laughs> they right. don't know how to get a hold of my parents. Right. But like, um, I've always chosen like a district superintendent or a colleague that I'm really close to in the area just for that immediate response. If something should happen, somebody to show up that um, just to be there, Yeah. you know, in the chaos. As well as somebody, you know, I don't know if you've like thought, like had this conversation of somebody to contact your parents, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. my parents also live, um, well, my parents live like halfway across the country. So they're not my emergency contact, but I also do not want in any circumstances, a hospital to call my parents, mm. right? right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I would rather have someone else be the one to call my parents to say, hey, Sarah's yeah. in the hospital. This yeah. is what's going on. Uh, this is what you should do now. Uh, whether that's you should start coming up or you should just hang tight for now. Yeah. Like whatever mm-hmm. it is, but I want somebody that's not the hospital, right, to be right. the one to contact my parents because they're so far away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not only because it's the impersonal, but also like the hospital, you can't expect the hospital to make a judgment call on, yes, you should come up right now. Like the hospital is, you know, going to feel bound by privacy laws as well to just say, I'm, I'm just supposed to tell, I'm, I'm barely allowed to tell you that you're here. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, you mm-hmm. want somebody who knows the, the other family contacts to be able to say, knowing your health circumstances or knowing you or how far the trip is, no, I don't say you should come yet or yes, you should. I mean, that, that having, again, it's communication yeah. in so many directions. So in vain of communication, I think you all might have touched on this in the first episode, but uh, it's also maybe good to talk about what you want to have happen at your funeral. Absolutely. Um, like I I have um, pre-funeral planned with parishioners before, and that is very lovely because it's often easier to talk with them about like, what scripture do you want to have happen uh, mm-hmm. to be read? What are your favorite hymns that you would like to be sung at your funeral? Um, you know, that's, that's always nice to go over with the person. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. It's nice to go over it with the family as well. But so often I feel like the family is sitting with me and going, I don't know. I don't know what scripture should be read at this funeral. I don't know what hymns are in your hymnals because I haven't been part of your faith tradition since I was a kid and you changed hymnals. So I don't <laughs> right. know. Right. Um, so, you know, I think communication, communication. Um, I know my, my husband is also a pastor, so he has a very detailed document that is on my computer as to what he okay. wants to have happen at his funeral. Mm-hmm. And then I have a much smaller document that's attached to it about what I want to have happen at my funeral. Um, But like, I think that that's important for people to at least think of. I think it's Mm -hmm. probably less important than having like an advanced directive living will kind of situation because, you know, whoever you have do your funeral, they've done funerals before. Even if you don't have strong opinions, they something will happen and it will be okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But if you and, do have strong opinions, let people know. Right. Well, yeah, and, and there, there it comes back to communication. That like the point of a funeral is not 
um, like to that question you had to deal with in a like, is the person ready for heaven? Does not depend on whether the liturgy of a funeral was carried out properly. My goodness, if 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 someone's admittance into heaven depended on <laughs> us getting the words right or something like that, everybody's singing in tune when it's time for how great thou art, that would be awfully difficult. Um, but no, like so the purpose of the funeral is in in so many ways because we who are grieving need to hear a word of hope and resurrection and to honor somebody's life and to grieve together, that kind of thing. But yeah, to have those conversations not only checks it off a list, but has a way of starting the closure before there's the need for like, it's a way of telling family members, like, I'm not afraid of death. In fact, look, I, here's the things I've already talked with so-and-so about as my pastor and here's what I want. And so that then when you get to the moment of having the service, the family can have that sense of, yeah, this is exactly what mom or dad or grandma or whomever wanted. And they can have a sense of confidence, not and I hope we're doing a good enough job for them, but more this is we're just carrying out what their wishes are. Um, in my first call, I had a parishioner die who like six years before I got there, she had a major health scare and thought she had months to live. Mm. Um, and then she ended up living for another like eight years. Um, but her pastor at that time, my predecessor, had her do a pre-funeral plan, but he like kind of just gave her the documents about like, this is what general service looks like. Here's some scripture options. Here's some hymn options. And then left her at it, like just left her to do it on her own. Um, She took it upon herself to write the homily (laughs) because she thought that is what he wanted her to do. Oh my. he He then retired and I was the one doing this funeral and it was the easiest funeral I have ever done in my entire life because it, her like funeral plan was so detailed that I didn't even have to write a sermon. It was like, funny. this is what she wants to be read at, yep. at the time of the homily. And it was a really good funeral sermon. Like it wasn't <laughs> like, what on earth is this? It's like, oh no, this is better than what I would have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On the flip side, I can remember when I was in seminary, my internship congregation, a member of the congregation who was a retired pastor died, and he had left extensive notes. This was not a congregation he had served, but had joined in members, and he'd left extensive notes, even down to the three main bullet points for themes for the service and the sermon, and it was just, it was funny a little bit, like having not known him, but knowing my supervising pastor who's trying to interpret and who knew this person in all the dimensions of his life, warts and all. And of course, rarely does anybody want to remember their own warts and all. So like he had this, you know, this glorious sort of way of remembering himself. And you could, you could see as the pastor who's actually preaching, like sort of gave this, like, here are the things he wanted said. And like, you, like in the silence, it could be like, we all know there was a lot more to this. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, like that, that's, that's, such a it's a, it, it may mean mean it may need to be a whole other conversation we have somewhere along the way, but that reality that a funeral can't possibly be we're going to talk about everything there is to know about this person, good and bad, but also we're not here to uh, gloss over, you know, or like pretend mm-hmm. that here, you know, but like I I think for me part of what needs to happen in a, a funeral, not just in the homily but in the whole of it, is like we are broken messed up people who are beautiful at the same time and that god treasures us in all of that messiness not we have to pretend they were better than they were or rehash their dirty laundry are the it's not a recitation of the person's life story and where they failed or how good they were but again no matter what jesus didn't let go of them and i think i mentioned this in our first episode um but it bears repeating 
if you have funeral services planned, like I said in the first episode, I, I had to do it for seminary class. So I had to plan my own funeral. That's been 10 years. It needs updated. <laughs> I mean, the pastor I wanted to do my funeral is still alive and we're still friends. But, you know, there, there might be some other people now that um, know me a little bit better because I haven't, you know, Matt's not my pastor anymore. Um, we're colleagues now. But, you know, making sure that your conversations with your family, your conversations with the funeral home are updated every so many years. Uh, so I think I shared the story of, you know, a parishioner who had picked out a casket 10 years before. And by the time she died, they didn't make it anymore. And so then her kids were left trying to figure out, okay, well, this kind of looks like what mom wanted, but we don't know yeah. because, you know, mom's gone and we don't know exactly like what was it about that particular casket right. that she liked. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems it seems minute. It seems frivolous almost in a way. But it was painful to watch them go through that. Yeah. And and when sometimes families feel like if they don't if they can't do what the person wanted, sometimes people's default is therefore we must express our love through money and we'll find the most expensive casket when that might or might not be the person's <laughs> wish. You know, when it's here's what they wanted, we got exactly what they wanted, good. But when they don't have that, sometimes families mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, as much as you can update. And again, communication. I I know um, one of my friends, um, she, she is, uh, she has two aging parents and a brother and neither she or her brother are married or have children. So they are, you know, now in their forties going into their fifties and they're living with this reality of like, they are a family of four and that's probably all they're going to be unless Mm -hmm. somebody gets married. Um, but they spend every New Year's together and on New Year's Day every year, they go over their wishes for when they die. Hmm. Like they just sit down all together at the table and they go, okay, well, this still stays the same from last year, but now mm-hmm. I'm updating this. Or, oh, I heard about this thing and I never thought about it before. So now I'm adding it into mm-hmm. this like like pile of information that we now have. And then um, everybody gets a copy of everybody's thing and Mm. um, they hold on to it for the year. And then they reconvene the next year to Mm. do it all over again. Mm. In some years, she says it takes not very long at all because nothing's really changed. They just kind of are touching Mm. base. And then sometimes it takes much longer because um, the beloved pastor has retired. And so now they're shifting complete gears as to what they want their funeral service to look like and or somebody else has a new health thing. And so they need to update some information about what they want to do if they land in the mm-hmm. hospital. Like it all just depends, but it again, boils down to, they are in very intentional about their communication um, more so than even I, who like communication, communication, communication would necessarily think to do, but yeah, just keep talking to people, make sure that they know what you want. I built a box that uh, I told everybody I want my ashes to go in one day and I used it for my Ash Wednesday sermon like I don't know, 10 years ago. So like theoretically, anybody who's in that room knows cremation is the box. I've already got it ready, <laughs> ready to go. You don't have to even decide, you don't have to worry about whether they still make the box. I made it <laughs> sitting on the ledge. I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. But then do they know that after your ashes go into it, what are they to do with the box? No, I haven't gotten that far. 
The sermon didn't include that. Because <laughs> that's also really important, right? Because mm-hmm. when you're cremated, you have the ability right. to stay on the mantle to like be there yeah. for forever yeah. until somebody puts you in a closet, or you could still be buried just now as ashes. So I, I, I got as far as the box, and I will tell you one more <laughs> detail about it. There's a latch from the inside. <laughs> It is it is it is my um my living witness to my hope and resurrection even after cremation. <laughs> oh. So well, at least everybody in that room 10 years ago knows that you have one hopes, one hopes and my family too then. Anyway, <laughs> so we've got other things we're going to need to talk about in future richer episodes and it's good when there can be moments of levity like this, because sometimes the conversation around death and dying is difficult. And next time we're also going to be talking about times where death is especially difficult when it doesn't follow the script we're given by life. So we would invite you to join us for uh, that conversation um, with honesty and hope next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.